0: commander, fighting back tears. Arnold has betrayed us, Washington said with profound emotion. Whom can we trust now? He sent Hamilton and McHenry off on horseback, careering down the Hudson for a dozen miles, in the futile hope they could overtake Arnold before he reached the safety of British lines. They arrived too late. Arnold was already aboard the Vulture and had been whisked off to New York City. On the spot, Hamilton displayed uncommon self-reliance. Aware that West Point lay in imminent peril, he sent directions to the 6th Connecticut Regiment to reinforce the fortress. Once again, he did not seem bashful about bossing around generals. There has been unfolded at this place a scene of the blackest treason, he wrote to General Nathaniel Green. I advise you putting the army under marching orders and detaching a brigade immediately this way. Hamilton hurried to Washington a letter just received from Arnold in which he blamed American ingratitude for his betrayal and sought to exonerate his wife. She is as good and as innocent as an angel and is incapable of doing wrong. Mrs. Arnold was still behaving bizarrely. After Verrick ushered Washington into the room, the sobbing woman refused to believe it was the General. No, that is not General Washington. That is the man who was a going to assist Colonel Verrick in killing my child. Washington sat by the bedside and tried to console the hysterical woman. Washington, Hamilton, and Lafayette were all duped by Peggy Arnold's command performance. They attributed her sudden raving to grief over her husband's traitorous behavior. To their gullible minds, this behavior was proof that she must be a blameless victim of Arnold's perfidy. In fact, she had been privy to the plot, having acted as conduit for some of her husband's correspondence with the British, and she played her mad scene to perfection. For all his supposed sophistication about womanly wiles, Hamilton was completely hoodwinked by Mrs. Arnold's brazen charade. As always, he was hypersensitive to female charms, and well-bred ladies in distress especially brought out his chivalry. In a letter to Eliza that day, one can see how taken Hamilton was with Peggy Arnold. It was the most affecting scene I ever was witness to she for a considerable time entirely lost her senses. One moment she raved, another she melted into tears. Sometimes she pressed her infant to her bosom and lamented its fate, occasioned by the imprudence of its father in a manner that would have pierced insensibility itself. All the sweetness of beauty, all the loveliness of innocence, all the tenderness of a wife, and all the fondness of a mother showed themselves in her appearance and conduct. She received us in bed with every circumstance that could interest our sympathy. Her sufferings were so eloquent that I wished myself her brother to have a right to become her defender. Hamilton was totally credulous in the face of this designing woman. Instead of being wary in a wartime situation, he converted Peggy Arnold's situation into a stage romance. His tenderness for an abandoned wife may have owed something to his boyhood sympathy for his mother— and this episode prefigured a still more damaging event in which he evinced misplaced compassion for a seemingly abandoned woman. Washington issued a passport to Mrs. Arnold that allowed her to return home to Philadelphia. She made a stop in Paramus, New Jersey, where she stayed at the Hermitage, the home of Mrs. Theodosia Prevo, whose husband was a British colonel sent to the West Indies. Once the two women were alone, Mrs. Arnold told her friend how she had made fools of Washington, Hamilton, and the others, and that she was tired of the theatrics she had been forced to affect. She expressed disgust with the patriotic cause and told of prodding her husband into the scheme to surrender West Point. The source of the story, printed many years later, was the man who was to be Theodosia Prevost's next husband, Aaron Burr. That Hamilton adhered to a code of gentlemanly honor was confirmed in yet another sideshow of the Benedict Arnold affair—the arrest of Major John André, Adjutant General of the British Army and Arnold's contact, traveling under the nom de guerre John Anderson. As he was awaiting a hearing to decide his fate, he was confined at a tavern in Tappan, New York. Though seven years younger than André, Hamilton developed a sympathy for the prisoner, born of admiration, and visited him several times— a letter that Hamilton later wrote to Lawrence reveals his nearly worshipful attitude toward the elegant, cultured André, who was conversant with poetry, music, and painting. Hamilton identified with André's misfortune in a personal manner, as if he saw his own worst nightmare embodied in his fate. To an excellent understanding, well improved by education and travel, André united a peculiar elegance of mind and manners and the advantage of a pleasing person, By his merit, he had acquired the unlimited confidence of his general and was making a rapid progress in military rank and reputation. But in the height of his career, flushed with new hopes from the execution of a project the most beneficial to his party that could be devised, he was at once precipitated from the summit of prosperity and saw all the expectations of his ambition blasted and himself ruined. Did Hamilton think that he, too, having attained such eminence, would suddenly plunge headlong back to earth? The fate of Major André became the subject of a heated dispute between Hamilton and Washington over whether he had acted as a spy or as a liaison officer between the British command and Arnold. This semantic debate had practical significance. If André was a spy, he would hang from the gallows like a common criminal, whereas if he was merely an unlucky officer, he would be shot like a gentleman such distinctions mattered both to André and to Hamilton. Hamilton argued that André wasn't a spy since he had planned to meet Arnold on neutral territory and was lured by Arnold behind patriotic lines against his intentions. A board of general officers convened by Washington disagreed, ruling that because André had come ashore secretly, assuming a fake name and civilian costume, he had functioned as a spy and should die like one. Washington certified the board's decision. He was adamant that André's mission could have doomed the patriotic cause and feared that anything less than summary execution would imply some lack of conviction about his guilt. It may have been Hamilton who sent a secret letter to Sir Henry Clinton on September 30th, proposing a swap of André for Arnold. The author tried to disguise his handwriting and signed the letter A.B. Coincidentally, Aaron Burr's initials. But Clinton had no doubt of its provenance and scrawled across it, Hamilton, Washington aide-de-camp, received after Andre death. Clinton refused to consider a trade, which would have meant instant death for Arnold at the hands of vengeful patriots. The decision to execute Major Andre was not the only time Hamilton regretted a choice by Washington, yet it was one time when he disagreed openly and consistently. The death of Andre could not have been dispensed with, Hamilton conceded to Major General Henry Knox nearly two years later, but it must still be viewed at a distance as an act of rigid justice. Hamilton's dissent betrayed growing frustration with Washington's inflexibility, frustration that was presently to flare into open rebellion. Major Andre faced his end with grace and valor. At five o'clock in the afternoon on the day after the board's decision, he was led to a hilltop gibbet outside of Tappan. When he saw the gallows, he reeled slightly. I am reconciled to my death, he said, though I detest the mode. Unaided, he mounted a coffin that lay in a wagon drawn up under the scaffold. With great dignity, he tightened the rope around his own neck and blindfolded himself with his own handkerchief. Then the wagon bolted away, leaving André swinging from the rope. He was buried on the spot. Hamilton left a moving, if romanticized, description of his death. In going to the place of execution, he bowed familiarly as he went along to all those with whom he had been acquainted in his confinement. A smile of complacency expressed the serene fortitude of his mind. Upon being told the final moment was at hand and asked if he had anything to say, he answered, Nothing but to request you will witness to the world that I die like a brave man. Hamilton's description shows his abiding fascination with a beautiful, noble death. I am aware that a man of real merit is never seen in so favorable a light as seen through the medium of adversity, he concluded in his letter to Lawrence. The clouds that surround him are shades that set off his good qualities. Major John André represented some beau ideal for Hamilton. The reverse side of this adulation, however, was a lacerating sense of personal inadequacy that the world seldom saw. However loaded with superabundant talent, Hamilton was a mass of insecurities that he usually kept well hidden. He always had to fight the residual sadness of the driven man, the unspoken melancholy of the prodigy, the wounds left by his accursed boyhood. Only to John Lawrence and Eliza Schuyler did he confide his fears. Right after Andre's death, Hamilton wrote to Schuyler that he wished he had Andre's accomplishments. "'I do not, my love, affect modesty,' I am conscious of the advantages I possess. I know I have talents and a good heart, but why am I not handsome? Why have I not every acquirement that can embellish human nature? Why have I not fortune that I might hereafter have more leisure than I shall have to cultivate those improvements for which I am not entirely unfit? It was a peculiar outburst. Hamilton was expressing envy for a man who had just been executed. Only in such passages do we see that Hamilton, for all his phenomenal success in the Continental Army, still felt unlucky and unlovely, still cursed by his past. During the summer and fall preceding Hamilton's wedding in December 1780, he sometimes mooned about in a romantic haze very much the lovesick swain. Love is a sort of insanity, he told Schuyler, and everything I write savors strongly of it. In frequent letters to his saucy little charmer, he reassured her that he thought about her constantly. Tis a pretty story indeed that I am to be thus monopolized by a little nut-brown maid like you, and am from a soldier metamorphosed into a puny lover. He would steal away from crowds, he told her, and stroll down solitary lanes to swoon over her image. You are certainly a little sorceress and have bewitched me, for you have made me disrelish everything that used to please me. As the wedding approached, Hamilton succumbed to anxieties about the future, and he sent Schuyler the most candid letters of his life. He was now optimistic about the war and thought the Continental Army, backed by French naval power, might yet snatch victory by year's end. Should the Patriots lose, however, Hamilton suggested that they live in some other clime more favorable to human rights, and suggested Geneva as a possibility. He then made a confession. I was once determined to let my existence and American liberty end together. My Betsy has given me a motive to outlive my pride. The sweet, retiring Schuyler would rescue him from the self-destructive fantasies that had long held sway over his imagination at the same time. the jittery Hamilton was beset by serious doubts about the wedding. all along he had saluted Schuyler's beauty, frankness, tender heart, and good sense. Now he wanted more. I entreat you, my charmer, not to neglect the charges I gave you, particularly that of taking care of yourself and that of employing all your leisure in reading. Nature has been very kind to you. Do not neglect to cultivate her gifts and to enable yourself to make the distinguished figure in all respects to which you are entitled to aspire, as he tutored Schuyler in self-improvement, there was a Pygmalion dimension to his wishes, but he also worried that her love might cool and scuttle the wedding. In one letter he related to her a dream he had of arriving in Albany and finding her asleep on the grass with a strange gentleman holding her hand. As you may imagine, he wrote, I reproached him with his presumption and asserted my claim. To his relief, Schuyler in the dream awoke, flew into his arms, and allayed his fears with a convincing kiss. Those who saw Hamilton as shrewdly marrying into a great fortune would have been surprised that he did not count on the Schuyler money and beseeched Eliza to consider whether she could endure a more austere life. Referring to the subscription fund set up by his St. Croix sponsors, he lamented the knavery of those managing his money. They have already filed down what was in their hands more than one half, and I am told they go on diminishing it. Thus, Schuyler should be prepared for anything, Your future rank in life is a perfect lottery. You may move in an exalted. You may move in a very humble sphere. The last is most probable. Examine well your heart. Pressing the matter further, he then asked her, Tell me, my pretty damsel, have you made up your mind upon the subject of housekeeping? Do you soberly relish the pleasure of being a poor man's wife?' Have you learned to think a homespun preferable to a brocade and the rumbling of a wagon wheel to the musical rattling of a coach and six? Will you be able to see with perfect composure your old acquaintances, flaunting it in gay life, tripping it along in elegance and splendor, while you hold a humble station and have no other enjoyments than the sober comforts of a good wife? If you cannot, my dear— We are playing a comedy of all in the wrong, and you should correct the mistake before we begin to act the tragedy of the unhappy couple. There is no hint here that Eliza was the daughter of a man whom Hamilton described as a gentleman of large fortune and no less personal and public consequences. Hamilton was too proud to sponge off the Schuylers, who would turn out, in any event, to be less affluent than legend held. Hamilton's prenuptial letters to Schuyler hint at a young man exposed to deprivation at an early age. He had seen too much discontent to approach marriage optimistically. In one letter he delivered a cynical view of both sexes and asked whether she could endure a hard life. "'But be assured, my angel, it is not a diffidence of my Betsy's heart, but of a female heart that dictated the questions.' I am ready to believe everything in favor of yours, but am restrained by the experience I have had of human nature and the softer part of it. Some of your sex possess every requisite to please, delight, and inspire, esteem, friendship, and affection. But there are too few of this description. We are full of vices. They are full of weaknesses. And though I am satisfied whenever I trust my senses and my judgment that you are one of the exceptions— I cannot forbear having moments when I feel a disposition to make a more perfect discovery of your temper and character. Do not, however, I entreat you, suppose that I entertain an ill opinion of all your sex. I have a much worse opinion of my own. Throughout this correspondence, George Washington's exacting presence hovered in the background. I would go on, but the general summons me to ride, Hamilton ended one letter. Since both he and Washington frowned on laxity during military campaigns, he refused to take a leave of absence to visit Schuyler. When Hamilton rode off to Albany in late November 1780 for the wedding, it was the first vacation he had taken in nearly five years of warfare. Situated on a bluff above the Hudson River, Albany was still a rough-hewn town of four thousand inhabitants, about one-tenth of them slaves, and was enclosed by stands of virgin pine. Even as English influence overtook New York City, Albany retained its early Dutch character, reflected in the gabled houses. Dutch remained the chief language, and the Schuylers sat through long Dutch sermons at the Reformed Church every Sunday. In many respects, Eliza, who loved to sew and garden, was typical of the young Dutch women of her generation, who were domestic and self-effacing, thrifty in managing households, and eager to raise large broods of children. We have little sense of what Hamilton truly thought of his mother-in-law, Catherine van Rensselaer Schuyler. Not long after marrying Philip Schuyler during the French and Indian War, she sat for a portrait that shows a striking, dark-eyed woman with a long, elegant neck and broad bosom. One contemporary described her as a lady of great beauty, shape, and gentility. By the time of Hamilton's wedding, however, she had settled into being a stout Dutch housewife, When the Marquis de Chasteloux visited the Schuylers that snowy December, he left with an indelible impression of Mrs. Schuyler as a dragoness who governed the house, intimidating her husband. The wary Frenchman decided that it was best not to treat her in too cavalier a fashion, and concluded that General Schuyler was more amiable when he is absent from his wife. If Mrs. Schuyler, forty-seven, was less than hospitable, It may have been because she was seven months pregnant with her youngest daughter, Catherine, the last of twelve times she endured childbirth. She was visibly pregnant at the time of her daughter's wedding. Hamilton had few people to invite to the wedding. His brother James was still alive, probably on St. Thomas, but he didn't come. Hamilton contacted his father, who was on Beckway in the Grenadines, but he didn't show up either, possibly because of problems posed by wartime travel for British subjects. Before the wedding, Alexander told Eliza, I wrote you, my dear, in one of my letters that I have written to our father, but had not heard of him since. I had pressed him to come to America after the peace. A gentleman going to the island where he is will, in a few days, afford me a safe opportunity to write again." I shall again present him with his black-eyed daughter and tell him how much her attention deserves his affection and will make the blessing of his gray hairs. Whether from shame, illness, or poverty, James Hamilton never met Eliza, the Schuylers, or his grandchildren, despite Alexander's sincere entreaties that he come to America. At noon on December fourteenth, 1780, Alexander Hamilton, 25, wed Elizabeth Schuyler, 23, in the southeast parlor of the Schuyler Mansion. The interior of the two-story brick residence was light and airy and had a magnificent curving staircase with beautifully carved balusters. During the ceremony, the parlor was likely radiant with sunshine reflected from the snow outside. The ceremony followed the Dutch custom of a small family wedding in the bride's home. At the local Dutch Reformed church, the clerk recorded simply Colonel Hamilton and Elizabeth Schuyler. After the ceremony, the guests probably adjourned to the entrance hall, which was nearly fifty feet long and twenty feet wide, and flanked by tall, graceful windows. Except for James McHenry, Hamilton's friends on Washington's staff were too busy with wartime duties to attend. For all the merriment and high spirits, few guests could have overlooked the mortifying contrast between the enormous Schuyler clan, with their Van Cortland and Van Rensselaer relatives, and the lonely groom who did not have a single family member in attendance. The newlyweds spent their honeymoon at the Pastures and stayed through the Christmas holidays. They were joined by four French officers from Rochambeau's army who crossed the ice-encrusted Hudson and arrived in sleighs. Even the fussy French officers complimented the food, the Madeira, and the engaging company. Nothing marred the perfection of the experience for Hamilton. A few weeks later, he wrote to Eliza's younger sister Peggy, because your sister has the talent of growing more amiable every day, or because I am a fanatic in love, or both, she fancies herself the happiest woman in the world. Hamilton probably felt, for the moment, that he was the happiest man in the world. The wedding to Eliza Schuyler ended his nomadic existence and embedded him in the Anglo-Dutch aristocracy of New York. His upbringing, instead of making him resent the rich, had perhaps made him wish to reclaim his father's lost nobility. Through marriage, he acquired an important base in a state in which politics revolved around the dynastic ambitions of the foremost Hudson River families. For the first time in his life, Alexander Hamilton must have had a true sense of belonging. His friendship with Philip Schuyler was to prove of inestimable value to Hamilton's career. At one point, when asking for Eliza's hand, Hamilton evidently told the general of his illegitimacy. "'I am pleased with every instance of delicacy in those who are dear to me,' Schuyler wrote in response, "'and I think I read your soul on that occasion you mention.' Having come from opposite ends of the social spectrum, the two men had arrived at similar political conclusions and proved steadfast allies." Like Hamilton, Schuyler chafed at the impotence of Congress and the Articles of Confederation and wanted to invest George Washington with dictatorial powers, if necessary, to win the war. He distrusted the yeomen and artisans who had elected the populist George Clinton as New York's first governor instead of him. Having felt scapegoated for the fall of Fort Ticonderoga, Schuyler urged Hamilton to respond emphatically to personal attacks. A man's character ought not to be sported with, he once wrote, and he that suffers stains to lay on it with impunity really deserves none, nor will he long enjoy one. Such a man was not likely to curb Hamilton's predilection for feuds and duels. Hamilton's wedding may have heightened the frustrations that he was quietly experiencing with Washington. The general could be a touchy boss, and Hamilton witnessed the anger he choked down in public. One observer remarked, The hardships of the revolutionary struggle had shaken the masterly control Washington had gained over his passions, and the officers of his staff had to suffer, not unfrequently, from the irritable temper and punctilious susceptibility of their commander. Hamilton was too proud and gifted, too eager to advance in rank, to subordinate himself happily to anyone for four years, even to the renowned Washington. Hamilton still hungered for a field command, He wanted fluttering flags, booming cannon, and bayonet charges, not a desk job. That October, as Lafayette prepared to mount a raid on Staten Island, he had asked Washington if Hamilton could lead a battalion. Washington vetoed the idea, saying he could not afford to give up Hamilton. Right before the wedding, Hamilton applied to lead a charge against British posts in northern Manhattan. Sometime last fall, when I spoke to Your Excellency about going to the southward, he reminded Washington, I explained to you candidly my feelings with respect to military reputation and how much it was my object to act a conspicuous part in some enterprise that might perhaps raise my character as a soldier above mediocrity. Again, Washington spurned Hamilton. Then Alexander Scammell tendered his resignation as adjutant general. Two generals, Nathaniel Green and the Marquis de Lafayette, lobbied to have Hamilton replace him, Washington again balked, saying that he could not promote the young lieutenant colonel over full colonels. Washington's predicament was clear. He had plenty of combat officers, but nobody could match Hamilton's French or his ability to draft subtle, nuanced letters. After almost hourly contact with Washington for four years, Hamilton had become his alter ego, able to capture his tone on paper or in person, and was a casualty of his own success. It would be a time rich in political disappointments for Hamilton. Right before his wedding, Congress decided to send an envoy extraordinary to the Court of Versailles to join Benjamin Franklin in raising a substantial loan and expediting supply shipments. General John Sullivan nominated Hamilton, who had been a proponent of such a loan. Lafayette also took up the cudgels for him. Three days before Hamilton's wedding, John Lawrence was unanimously chosen instead, even though he stubbornly maintained that Hamilton was better qualified. Lawrence thought Hamilton's nomination faltered only because he was insufficiently known in Congress. Earlier in the year, when Lawrence had tried to secure Hamilton a post as secretary to the American minister in France, Hamilton had analyzed his own rejection thus, "'I am a stranger in this country. I have no property here, no connections.' If I have talents and integrity, these are justly deemed very spurious titles in these enlightened days. These disappointments only buttressed his belief in meritocracy, not aristocracy, as the best system for government appointments. The day after Hamilton's wedding, Congressman John Matthews of South Carolina nominated him as minister to Russia. Again, he was passed over. Hamilton now feared that he would be shackled to his desk for the duration of the conflict. For him, A degrading form of drudgery. He wanted one last chance for battlefield honor, which would be a useful credential in the post war political world. Perhaps the marriage to Eliza Schuyler emboldened Hamilton to challenge Washington and assert his independence. After all, he was no longer a penniless young immigrant lacking in property and connections. After Hamilton returned to military service in early January 1781, he hired a guide to lead him south through the narrow mountain passes to Washington's headquarters, now located at a Dutch farmhouse on the Hudson River at New Windsor. Eliza soon joined him, and they shared lodgings in the nearby village. The young bride often assisted Martha Washington in entertaining officers, and she observed George Washington in a vignette of domestic heroism that remained engraved on her memory. A fire broke out in a shed adjoining his headquarters, and Washington instantly bounded down the stairs from his second-floor office, grabbed a wash-tub full of suds from the farmer's wife, dumped the suds on the blaze, then dashed back and forth with other tubs until the fire was extinguished. Meanwhile, Eliza's new husband felt less than enamored of Washington. He had been snubbed over too many appointments and meditated an open break he resolved that if there should ever happen to be a breach between us, he was determined never to consent to an accommodation. It was an inauspicious moment for Hamilton to clash with Washington. The Continental Army was experiencing another abominable winter. That January, mutinies erupted among Pennsylvania and New Jersey troops, who had not been paid for more than a year, and protested the eternal shortages of clothing, shoes, horses, wagons, meat, flour, and gunpowder. Many wanted to return home at the expiration of their three-year enlistments, but were prevented from doing so by their officers. So demoralized were these troops that some officers feared they might even defect to the British. Hamilton applauded when Washington took draconian steps to suppress the mutineers, and refused to negotiate until they had laid down their weapons. On February 4th, Hamilton wrote to Lawrence that, "'We uncivilly compelled them to an unconditional surrender,' and hanged their most incendiary leaders. With this uprising quelled, Hamilton was now ready for a showdown with Washington, who remained edgy after the uprising of his men. On February 15th, the two men worked to midnight as they readied dispatches for the French officers at Newport. The next day, a frazzled Hamilton was going downstairs in the New Windsor farmhouse as the general mounted the steps. Washington said curtly that he wanted to speak to Hamilton. Hamilton nodded, then delivered a letter to Tench Tillman, and paused to converse briefly with Lafayette on business before heading back upstairs. In a letter written to Philip Schuyler two days later, Hamilton narrated the confrontation that ensued. Instead of finding the general as usual in his room, I met him at the head of the stairs, where, accosting me in a very angry tone, "'Colonel Hamilton,' said he, "'you have kept me waiting at the head of the stairs these ten minutes. I must tell you, sir, you treat me with disrespect.' I replied without petulancy, but with decision, I am not conscious of it, sir, but since you have thought it necessary to tell me so, we part. Very well, sir, said he, if it be your choice, or something to this effect, and we separated. I sincerely believe my absence, which gave so much umbrage, did not last two minutes. Remarkably enough, it was Washington who made the large-hearted conciliatory gesture after this altercation— and within an hour sent Tillman to see Hamilton. Tillman said that Washington regretted his fleeting temper and encouraged Hamilton to come and patch things up. Hamilton, now twenty-six, had the colossal courage, or colossal cheek, to turn down cold the commander-in-chief. Where others were awed by the godlike Washington, Hamilton knew too well his mortal foibles. I requested Mr. Tillman to tell him that I had taken my resolution in a manner not to be revoked, that as a conversation could serve no other purpose than to produce explanations mutually disagreeable, though I certainly would not refuse an interview if he desired it, yet I should be happy if he would permit me to decline it. Washington reluctantly honored Hamilton's decision to leave his staff. Hamilton knew these events would shock Philip Schuyler, Washington's warm friend, who had been thrilled to have the General's aide-de-camp as his son-in-law. Hamilton told Schuyler that he wanted to command artillery or light infantry, but he knew a fuller explanation was required. He had not acted rashly, he insisted. He had long hated the personal dependence that accompanied his position and had found Washington to be much more temperamental than his exalted reputation allowed. Their working relationship had done violence to my feelings. Then Hamilton made a stunning revelation. Washington had wanted to be closer all along. It was Hamilton who had rebuffed him. For three years past I have felt no friendship for him and have professed none. The truth is, our own dispositions are the opposites of each other, and the pride of my temper would not suffer me to profess what I did not feel. Indeed, when advances of this kind have been made to me on his part, they were received in a manner that showed at least I had no inclination to court them and that I wished to stand rather upon a footing of military confidence than of private attachment. You are too good a judge of human nature not to be sensible how this conduct in me must have operated on a man to whom all the world is offering incense. The same day Hamilton wrote to James McHenry in a more vindictive tone, showing that he was severely disillusioned with Washington and tired of feeling browbeaten. The great man and I have come to an open rupture. He shall, for once at least, repent his ill-humor. Without a shadow of reason and on the slightest ground, he charged me in the most affrontive manner with treating him with disrespect. Hamilton acknowledged that Washington's popularity was necessary to the Patriots, and he promised to keep their rift a secret, but he had no intention of revising his decision. The rupture with Washington highlights Hamilton's egotism, outsized pride, and quick temper— and is perhaps the first of many curious lapses of judgment and timing that detracted from an otherwise stellar career. Washington had generously offered to make amends, but the hypersensitive young man was determined to teach the commander-in-chief a stern lesson in the midst of the American Revolution. Hamilton exhibited the recklessness of youth and a disquieting touch of folie de grandeur. On the other hand, Hamilton believed that he had been asked to sacrifice his military ambitions for too long, and that he had waited patiently for four years to make his mark. And he was only asking to risk his life for his country. If Hamilton were simply the brazen opportunist later portrayed by his enemies, he would never have risked this breach with the one man who would almost certainly lead the country if the revolution succeeded. Fortunately, Washington and Hamilton recognized that each had a vital role to play in a war and that this was too important to be threatened by petty annoyances. Despite their often conflicted feelings for each other, Washington remained unwaveringly loyal toward Hamilton, whom he saw as exceptionally able and intelligent, if sometimes errant. One senses a buried affection toward the younger man that he could seldom manifest openly. Where Hamilton had reservations about Washington as a general, he never underestimated his prudence, character, patriotism, and leadership qualities. In the last analysis, the durable bond formed between Hamilton and Washington during the Revolution was based less on personal intimacy than on shared experiences of danger and despair and common hopes for America's future. From the same situation, they had drawn the same conclusions. The need for a national army for centralized power over the states, for a strong executive, and for national unity. Their political views, forged in the crucible of war, were to survive many subsequent attempts to drive them apart. Chapter 8 Glory For a month after their feud, Washington and Hamilton performed their charade admirably, pretending that nothing had happened between them. Hamilton requisitioned two horses—one for him, one for his baggage—and rode off with Washington in early March to perform his last stint as interpreter in a conference with the Comte de Rochambeau and other French officers at Newport. On March 8, Washington, Hamilton, and their French counterparts rode out on horseback for a sunset review of the French fleet, and that same day Hamilton drafted his last letter under Washington's signature. A few days later, Washington departed for what he called My Dreary Quarters at New Windsor, and Hamilton headed off to the Schuyler Mansion in Albany. One of the most brilliant, productive partnerships of the Revolution had ended. If Washington expected relief from Hamilton badgering him for an appointment, he soon learned otherwise. Hamilton was fully prepared to become a pest. In mid-April, he found quarters for himself and Eliza in a brick-and-stone Dutch dwelling at De peister's Point on the east bank of the Hudson, by no coincidence opposite Washington's headquarters at New Windsor. He even ordered a little boat which two people can manage, so that he could scoot back and forth on short notice. No sooner was Hamilton unpacked than he told General Nathaniel Green that he was scouting for anything that fortune may cast up, I mean in the military line. Hamilton seemed ubiquitous in New Windsor. One evening a New England visitor, Jeremiah Smith, found himself discussing topical events with strangers at a local tavern. I was struck with the conversation, talents, and with the superior reasoning power of one who seemed to take the lead. It exceeded anything I had before heard, and even my conceptions. When the company retired, I found it was Colonel Hamilton I admired so much. On April twenty seventh, the amazingly persistent young colonel addressed a formal letter to Washington, requesting a position in the vanguard force to be sent south. Reminding Washington of his earlier exploits as artillery captain, he noted, I began in the line, and, had I continued there, I ought in justice to have been more advanced in rank than I now am. One can almost feel Washington growing hot under the collar in his reply. He was still dealing with extreme discontent in the ranks. Now he had to deal with Hamilton. Your letter of this date has not a little embarrassed me, he replied, referring to the upheavals produced in the past when he had jumped junior officers above those of higher rank. Lest Hamilton suspect that his intransigence stemmed from their contreton, Washington cautioned, My principal concern arises from an apprehension that you will impute my refusal of your request to other motives than these I have expressed. While awaiting a military assignment, Hamilton, never idle, refined his thoughts about the financial emergency gripping the States. With the collapse of the continental currency— Congress conquered its fears of the centralized power that might be wielded by a finance minister. Power had begun to flow from congressional committees to individual department heads, for war, foreign relations, and finance, just as Hamilton had recommended to James Duane. General John Sullivan, now back in Congress, wanted to nominate Hamilton as the new superintendent of finance and sounded out Washington on his qualifications. However incredible it now seems, Washington confessed that he had never discussed finance with his aide, but he did volunteer, This I can venture to advance from a thorough knowledge of him, that there are few men to be found of his age who has a more general knowledge than he possesses, and none whose soul is more firmly engaged in the cause, or who exceeds him in probity and sterling virtue. A glowing tribute from a man who had observed Hamilton at close range for four years. In the end, Sullivan withheld Hamilton's nomination due to overwhelming congressional support for Robert Morris, who took office in May 1781. A native of Liverpool, Morris had served in the Continental Congress and reluctantly signed the Declaration of Independence. He was an impressive-looking man with a wide, fleshy face, an ample paunch, and the sharp, shrewd gaze of a self-made merchant prince. He lived in a sumptuous Philadelphia mansion, tended by liveried servants, and was reputedly the richest man in town. He brought a somewhat mixed legacy to the new post. Lacking federal taxing power and a central bank, the Patriots had to rely on private credit, and Morris, more than anyone else, had sustained the cause by drawing on his own credit to pay troops and even government spies. On the other hand, critics had accused him of exploiting his government connections for personal gain. A lowly figure beside the august Morris, Hamilton wanted to establish his intellectual bona fides with the new superintendent of finance. Before writing to him, Hamilton brushed up on money matters and had Colonel Timothy Pickering send him some primers. David Hume's political discourses, tracts written by the English clergyman and polemicist Richard Price, and his all-purpose crib, Postlethwaite's Universal Dictionary of Trade and Commerce. On April thirtieth, 1781, Hamilton sent a marathon letter to Morris. It runs to thirty-one printed pages that set forth a full-fledged system for shoring up American credit and creating a national bank. Portions of this interminable letter exist in Eliza's handwriting, complete with her faulty spelling, as if Hamilton's hand ached and he had to pass the pen to his bride at intervals. Hamilton started out sheepishly enough. I pretend not to be an able financier. Neither have I had leisure or materials to make accurate calculations. Then he delivered a virtuoso performance as he asserted the need for financial reforms to complete the revolution. Tis by introducing order into our finances, by restoring public credit, not by gaining battles that we are finally to gain our object. Hamilton forecast a budget deficit of four to five million dollars and doubted that foreign credit alone could trim it, His solution was a national bank. He traced the riches of Venice, Genoa, Hamburg, Holland, and England to their flourishing banks, which enhanced state power and facilitated private commerce. Once again he plumbed the deep sources of British power. Where others saw only lofty ships and massed bodies of redcoats, Hamilton perceived a military establishment propped up by a vast fabric of credit. Tis by this alone she now menaces our independence. America, he argued, did not need to triumph decisively over the heavily taxed British. A war of attrition that eroded British credit would nicely do the trick. All the patriots had to do was plant doubts among Britain's creditors about the war's outcome. By stopping the progress of their conquests and reducing them to an unmeaning and disgraceful defensive, we destroy the national expectation of success from which the ministry draws their resources. This was an extremely subtle, sophisticated analysis for a young man immersed in wartime details for four years. America could defeat the British in the bond market more readily than on the battlefield. Hamilton had developed a fine appreciation of English institutions while fighting for freedom from England. In the letter's finale, he contended that America should imitate British methods and exploit the power of borrowing. A national debt, if it is not excessive— will be to us a national blessing. It will be powerful cement of our union. Clearly, Hamilton was in training to superintend American finance someday. In late May, Morris sent him a flattering reply, informing him that many of his opinions tallied precisely with his own. Congress had just approved Morris's plan for the Bank of North America, a merchant bank that he hoped would be expanded after the war to encourage commerce. This exchange of letters initiated an important friendship. During the next few years, Hamilton and Morris were kindred spirits in their efforts to establish American finance on a sound, efficient basis. Hamilton continued to stew about the Articles of Confederation, which had been ratified belatedly by the last state on February 27, 1781. Hamilton thought this loose framework a prescription for rigor mortis, There was no federal judiciary, no guiding executive, no national taxing power, and no direct power over people as individuals, only as citizens of the states. In Congress, each state had one vote, and nine of the thirteen states had to concur to take significant actions. The Articles of Confederation promised little more than a fragile alliance of thirteen miniature republics. Hamilton had already warned that if the ramshackle Confederacy fostered the illusion that Congress had sufficient power, it will be an evil, for it is unequal to the exigencies of the war or to the preservation of the Union hereafter. Again, Hamilton appealed for a convention to bring forth a more durable government. That the thirteen states would someday coalesce into a single country was far from a foregone conclusion. Indeed, the states had hampered many crucial war measures, such as long-term enlistments, from fear that their troops might shed their home state allegiances. People continued to identify their states as their countries, and most outside the military had never traveled more than a day's journey from their homes. But the revolution itself, especially the Continental Army, had been a potent instrument for fusing the states together and forging an American character. Speaking of the effect that the fighting had on him, John Marshall probably spoke for many soldiers when he said, I was confirmed in the habit of considering America as my country and Congress as my government. During the war, a sense of national unity seeped imperceptibly into the minds of many American diplomats, administrators, congressmen, and, above all, the nucleus of officers gathered around Washington. These men had gotten many dismaying glimpses of the shortcomings of the Articles of Confederation, and many later emerged as confirmed advocates of a tight-knit union of the states. As a member of Washington's family, Hamilton had stumbled upon the crowning enterprise of his life, the creation of a powerful new country. By dint of his youth, foreign birth, and cosmopolitan outlook, he was spared pre-war entanglements in provincial state politics— making him a natural spokesman for a new American nationalism. As soon as he left Washington's staff, he began to convert his private opinions into cogently reasoned newspaper editorials. In July and August 1781, he published a quartet of essays in the New York packet entitled The Continentalist that were signed A.B., the same initials as in the letter written to Sir Henry Clinton proposing the trade of Major André for Benedict Arnold. These four articles seem spirited precursors to the Federalist Papers. Instead of carping at problems in random fashion, Hamilton delivered a systematic critique of the current political structure. He introduced a critical theme, that the dynamics of revolutions differed from those of peacetime governance. The post-war world had to be infused with a new spirit, respectful of authority, or anarchy would reign. An extreme jealousy of power is the attendant on all popular revolutions and has seldom been without its evils. It is to this source we are to trace many of the fatal mistakes which have so deeply endangered the common cause, particularly that defect which will be the object of these remarks, a want of power in Congress. Where revolutions by their nature resisted excess government power, the opposite situation could be equally hazardous as too much power leads to despotism, too little leads to anarchy, and both, eventually, to the ruin of the people. Unless the central government's hand was strengthened, asserted Hamilton, the states would amass progressively more power until the Union disintegrated into secessionist movements, smaller confederacies, or civil war. He especially feared that populist states would indulge in separatist designs and take advantage of commercial rivalries or boundaries disputes as pretexts to wage war against smaller states. To avert the situation, Hamilton listed a litany of powers that Congress needed to strengthen the Union, especially the powers to regulate trade, levy enforceable taxes on land and individuals, and appoint military officers of every rank. Only unity could wring from skittish foreign creditors the large loans necessary to conclude the war. In closing, Hamilton applauded the National Bank proposed by Morris, which would wed the interest of the moneyed men with the resources of government. This alliance would help to prop up a shaky government. Hamilton's life was to be all of a piece, and the kernel of many of his later theories first germinated in these essays— His views did not change greatly over time so much as expand in richness, depth, and scope. Vernon Parrington later observed of Hamilton, Singularly precocious, he matured early. Before his twenty-fifth year he seems to have developed every main principle of his political and economic philosophy, and thereafter he never hesitated or swerved from his path. To a peculiar extent, his mind was already focused on the problems that were to dominate the post-war period. During the spring and early summer of 1781, Hamilton never slackened in his efforts to wrest a field command from Washington, and yet he refused to admit his bulldog tenacity. In May, he told Washington, with no apparent irony, I am incapable of wishing to obtain any object by importunity. Eliza worried about his safety if he received a field command, while Sister Angelica entered into Hamilton's elaborate ambitions. When Angelica's husband, John Barker Church, got wind of rumors that Hamilton might obtain an appointment, he coyly informed his brother-in-law that a certain lady, who has not yet made her appearance this morning, is very anxious for your happiness and glory. In early July, still panting for a combat role, Hamilton tempted fate by sending Washington a letter containing his commission, thus tacitly threatening to resign if he didn't get his desired command. It says much about Washington's high esteem for Hamilton that instead of bridling at this effrontery, he sent Tench Tillman to him in an accommodating spirit. This morning Tillman came to me in his, Washington's, name— pressed me to retain my commission, with an assurance that he would endeavor by all means to give me a command, Hamilton told Eliza, who had gone to stay with her family in Albany. Though I know my Betsy would be happy to hear I had rejected this proposal, it is a pleasure my reputation would not permit me to afford her. Finally, on July thirty-first, Hamilton succeeded in his long-standing quest when he received command of a New York Light Infantry Battalion and chose Nicholas Fish— his King's College classmate as his second-in-command. With the war nearing its climax, Hamilton knew that Washington had vouchsafed one last coveted chance for battlefield laurels. If Eliza brooded about her husband's well-being, Hamilton returned the favor, especially after learning in late spring that Eliza was pregnant with their first child. The New York frontier around Albany had been plundered repeatedly by Tory and Indian raids, In one infamous massacre in 1778, they had mutilated and dismembered thirty-two patriots, and General Schuyler bemoaned to his son-in-law in May 1781 that the area was one general scene of ruin and desolation. Schuyler himself was especially vulnerable. He had overseen a spy network with such efficiency that the British were plotting to kidnap him at home, as he learned that spring, and he made special arrangements to have an Albany guard hasten to his aid in case of emergency. On August 7th, about twenty Tories and Indians barged into the Schuyler mansion, overpowered the sleeping guards, seized weapons in the cellar, and surrounded the house. Angelica had removed some weapons to the cellar when she found her little boy playing with them. General Schuyler retreated to an upstairs bedroom where, using a prearranged signal, he fired his pistol out the window to summon help. Mrs. Schuyler and her daughters were so horrified, some hanging on General Schuyler's arms and others embracing his knees in the most distressing terror and uncertainty, reported one eyewitness, that the general was trapped by his clinging family. Then the women remembered that Mrs. Schuyler's infant daughter Catherine had been left in a cradle by the front door, Since both Eliza and Angelica were pregnant, Sister Peggy crept downstairs to retrieve the endangered child. The leader of the raiding party barred her way with a musket. "'Wench! Wench! Where is your master?' he demanded. "'Gone to alarm the town,' the cool-headed Peggy said. The intruder, fearing that Schuyler would return with troops, fled in alarm." Legend maintains that one Indian hurled a tomahawk at Peggy's head as she trotted up the stairs with the baby in her arms. To this day, the mahogany banister bears what are thought to be scars from the blade. Hamilton was shocked by the news. I have received, my beloved Betsy, your letter informing me of the happy escape of your father. He showed an admirable presence of mind. My heart has felt all the horror and anguish attached to the idea of your being yourself and seeing your father in the power of ruffians. Until early August, Washington had been planning a siege of New York City, so Hamilton did not expect to be too distant from Eliza during her pregnancy. Then, in mid-August, Washington learned that the Comte de Grasse, admiral of the French fleet in the West Indies, planned to sail for Chesapeake Bay. This sensational piece of news dovetailed with another that promised a decisive military action. Lafayette informed him that General Cornwallis was now entrenched at Yorktown, surrounded by water on three sides. This made the spot, from one perspective, a perfect fortress, and from another, a perfect trap. Washington had wanted to deal the coup de grace to the British in New York and recoup his earlier losses by reclaiming Manhattan and Long Island the Comte de Rochambeau dashed this plan, citing problems posed by shallow waters outside New York Harbor and the British fortifications on Manhattan. So with some reluctance, Washington agreed to hazard all by moving additional men to the Chesapeake to link up with Lafayette and de Grasse's fleet in choking off Cornwallis's army. In late August, Hamilton informed Eliza indiscreetly that he and part of the army would be moving to Virginia. The move was still a military secret. He refused to quit his troops or request a leave to see his bride. I must go without seeing you, he wrote three days after the New York troops began to march south. I must go without embracing you. Alas, I must go. He remained, however, the dreamy newlywed. I am more greedy of your love than a miser of his gold, he continued, It is the food of my hopes, the object of my wishes, the only enjoyment of my life. On September 6th, he divulged to Eliza the army's destination. Tomorrow we embark for Yorktown, and sounded confident of victory. In a poetic conceit that he often played with but never acted upon, he toyed with abandoning worldly pursuits to luxuriate in her company. Every day confirms me in the intention of renouncing public life and devoting myself wholly to you. Let others waste their time and their tranquility in a vain pursuit of power and glory. Be it my object to be happy in a quiet retreat with my better angel. Like other founders and Enlightenment politicians, Hamilton could never quite admit the depth of his ambition, lest it cast doubts on his revolutionary purity. In the midst of such rarefied goals as freedom and independence, who could admit to baser motives or any thoughts of personal gain? Washington had also balked at the Yorktown plan because he wondered how could he move his hungry, bedraggled troops long distances along muddy roads without advertising his intentions to the British. He solved this dilemma ingeniously, marching foot soldiers southward in parallel lines at staggered intervals to mislead the enemy about his intentions. Washington knew that he had a singular chance to strike a mortal blow against the British if he could coordinate the massive movements of men and ships. With unerring precision, he guided his 2,000 men and de Rochambeau's 4,000, so they would rendezvous in Virginia with 29 large ships-of-the-line and 3,000 troops brought from the West Indies by Admiral de Grasse, supplemented by 7,000 Americans already in place under Lafayette. To Washington's jubilation, Admiral de Grasse showed up even before he did, a fact that made the reserved Washington literally jump for joy. When Washington boarded the Admiral's flagship, the Ville de Paris, a resplendent triple-decker with 120 guns. The Frenchman teased his towering American counterpart by calling him Mon Cher Petit General. In late September, Hamilton and his light infantry reached Williamsburg, the staging area for the Yorktown siege, where he enjoyed an exuberant reunion with a trio of old friends. Lafayette, then convalescing from malaria, John Lawrence, just back from Paris with arms, ammunition, and a large French subsidy negotiated by Benjamin Franklin, and Lieutenant Colonel Francis Barber, his teacher from Elizabethtown days, who had been wounded at Monmouth and had fought valiantly throughout the war. On September 28th, Hamilton and his men trudged toward Yorktown through deep woods that opened intermittently to reveal fields of corn and tobacco. When they arrived the next day, the siege had just commenced. Dug in on high ground, Cornwallis had been throwing up earthwork redoubts since early August, employing thousands of slaves who had defected to the British lines in expectation of earning their freedom. In all, he built ten outlying defensive strongholds. Two would have caught the attention of Hamilton and his men at once. Numbers 9 and 10 stood closer to Allied troops than the others. It was here that Hamilton was finally to have his oft-postponed appointment with military glory. By October 6th, Expert French engineers, aided by fine autumnal weather, began to carve out two deep parallel trenches about six hundred yards from the British lines to seal Cornwallis and his famished, fever-wracked men inside a trap. Military custom dictated a small celebration when the first trench was completed. Hamilton and his men were drafted for this honor and had no sooner disappeared into the long ditch amid swirling flags and thudding drums than the British let loose cannon fire. With a bit of completely unnecessary bravado, Hamilton issued an outlandish order. Perhaps knowing his men were beyond the range of small-arms fire, he brought them out of the trench and onto exposed ground, where he put them through parade-ground drills before the flabbergasted British. Luckily, the British didn't, or couldn't, mow them down. Of this irresponsible performance, one subordinate, Captain James Duncan, wrote in his diary, Colonel Hamilton gave these orders and, although I esteem him one of the first officers in the American army, must beg in this instance to think he wantonly exposed the lives of his men. By October 9th, the Allies began to bombard Cornwallis, with Washington himself touching off the first volley of cannon fire. Day and night the cannonade exploded with such unrelenting fury that one lieutenant in the Royal Navy said, it seemed as though the heavens should split. As the din grew almost unendurable, this British officer saw men lying nearly everywhere who were mortally wounded,